Would you please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10? I hope you have uh, been enjoying our study of Hebrews and also been challenged by it. I told you that when we began it, it's a difficult book. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard book to understand in some levels and not on others. You do have to have a good knowledge of Old Testament, and hopefully we've done our best to help explain things as best we can. But the last few weeks, if you've been tracking, have been really the gospel, haven't they? It's been really centered on Christ and his sacrifice for uh, for us, and uh, we really come uh, are going to come to the uh, end of chapter ten, which really is the the second longest chapter here. With chapters ten and eleven, are the longest in Hebrews, and so we're not even going to get through all of it today. But we're going to come to the fourth of uh, five urgent warnings that are given in this book. You might remember that periodically the author paused from his doctrinal presentation to give a gospel invitation. And it just shows me that this author, is he's an effective teacher because he doesn't just present biblical facts, but he paused all throughout this to offer uh, an, a, an opportunity for people to accept the truth that he has been presenting. Um, that's pastoring. That's uh, teaching. We're, we're called to preach, but also to convince, rebuke, exhort. And that is the, the job of a, a pastor. And, and I want to remind you that this whole letter is in one big exhortation. In chapter 13, verse 22, he says, And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. One big exhortation letter, but an exhortation demands a response. And so throughout this, he has been stopping and asking for a response. And I kind of want to recap those because it's been a few weeks, well, it's been a few months since we've had any of these pauses where the warnings have come. And there's only five, and we're starting the fourth today. But back in chapter 2, we saw the first warning. The first warning back in chapter 2 was don't drift away, if you remember that. Verse 1 says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Remember, remember that. If you don't secure yourself to the truth when you hear the truth, you're in great peril. You are in danger of drifting past your chance. He sort of uses uh, nautical terms here, gliding past uh, forgiveness, sailing straight into judgment. Anchor yourself to the truth while you have an opportunity. That's what he's saying. And it's the hearing of truth that we must all respond to, isn't it? When we hear the truth, you have an opportunity. Will you respond to it or will you not? The unresponsive, they're in grave danger and danger of eternal punishment. That was the first warning. And while that would encourage people to make a decision before they miss their chance or, or miss the opportunity, the second warning encouraged people to make a decision before their own hearts became hard. Do you remember that? Back in chapter 3, turn there real quick. Back in chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. And there he gives us an example of the hardened hearts of the Israelites in the wilderness. And, and they certainly hardened their hearts against God there. And because they did, they did not enter his rest. They died there. And a heart that is hardened is no longer capable of responding to the Holy Spirit. You've hardened yourself against the truth that the Holy Spirit is trying to penetrate you with. And a stubborn or an obstinate heart will 
result in God's rejection. He finally will say, you know, I've had enough. And that's what he did with those in the wilderness. And we're told there that a hardened heart is an evil heart of unbelief, that it departs from the living God. And so they don't enter his rest. The third one we came to in chapter 6, and the warning there was don't fall away. Back in chapter 6, verse 4, it said this, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. If you're on the, the edge of salvation, and maybe you have a, a, you've been born into some spiritual privilege like the, the Israelites, being raised in a Christian home, hearing the, the news all the time, being exposed to gospel teaching like you are uh, here, um, hearing the teaching of the Word of God, being exposed to His Holy Spirit. People who come to Calvary Chapel are exposed to His Spirit because His Spirit is moving amongst us. And if you've tasted all of those things, now is your opportunity, he says. And so now we come to chapter 10. In chapter 10, we find the fourth warning. But there's a big difference here. He's not just simply pausing his uh, argument. He's actually completed it. We actually have uh, come to the end of all of his evidence. He's given all of his evidence for the superiority of Christ. That began way back in chapter 1, that Christ made all things. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He has a better um, priesthood. He mediates a better covenant. He's a better sacrifice. And that's where it culminated. The last couple of weeks, we looked at the better sacrifice. And just to recap that, that, that sacrifice of Christ guarantees our eternal inheritance because his sacrifice was a once for all sacrifice. And it dealt with the problem of imperfection by by cleansing us of our sin permanently, ridding us of the guilt, and giving us complete forgiveness. And as a result, we have access to God, full and complete. No, No Jew ever had full, complete access to God under the old covenant. And so we're permanently sanctified. That's positionally and practically. We looked at those last week. And we're also empowered to live the Christian life. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit who is the deposit of our inheritance, our guarantee, living within us. So all of that is the truth of Christ. That's what we've been looking at. And and this is who Jesus is. This is what he did. And and the question really is, how will you respond to that? That question really wasn't asked in the text last week. It was presented. And it's the one question we all have to answer. Who is Jesus? You must decide either to accept him or reject him. When you're presented with the gospel truth, do you accept it or do you reject it? And here in this this first part, the author is inviting people here to accept it, to accept the gospel. It's the second half of this, where he, uh, which we're not going to look at this week, it'll be next week, that he warns against rejecting the gospel. And it's don't draw back, that's his warning. That's the title of the sermon today, really just a part one of that. But it comes from verse 39. Go to verse 39 of chapter 10. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. There are those who will draw back. Draw back is uh, hupostole. It is to, to retreat. 
It is to shrink away timidly, to shrink back. There are those that will do that, and they do that to their destruction. And so here in all the rest of chapter 10, both responses are going to be examined. The gospel is presented. He's inviting people to accept. That's the positive response. And he says this in verse 22, draw near, draw near. But to those who reject, that's the negative gospel, they draw back. So this week, let's look at the positive. Good to look at a positive response, isn't it? Um, We're going to read the passage. It's verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We pray. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the uh, invitation before us, before everyone, to accept the truth, to accept, receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, to take up the relationship with him that has been offered, Lord. I pray even now as we look at this that you would begin to work in the hearts of those who have not yet accepted Christ, Lord, that they would see that this invitation is extended to them. Bring us into your truth today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these opening verses are a little bit of a review, to be honest, because they sort of are encapsulating his whole teaching from the previous chapter, but he does it a little bit uniquely. Um, And so we're going to look at this, but this is all specifically aimed at the brethren, which in the book of Hebrews is is the fellow Jews, because it's it's, um, to Jews. All throughout Hebrews, brethren is how he refers to them. But not because this is, is not significant to us, because it is. But the Jews that are being written to are living still in this time under the old economy. The temple still stands. Priests are still going into the holy place. They're still sprinkling blood on the the mercy seat. All that is still happening. And so to a Jew who took that Old Testament seriously, this is incredible news, what he is saying here. And it should be incredible to us as well. So really the first point is, is this, why should you accept Christ? He's given all of the evidence and now he just sort of bundles it up into the two main points. Why should you accept Christ? Christ. The first is this, he gave you access to God. Um, Verse 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, we've been talking about access to God for for some weeks now. We've looked back at the tabernacle. I want to remind you even of the tabernacle that we sort of measured out in here, 45 feet long. And uh, it basically went from the, 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 the edge of the, well, probably a few feet into the stage here, and and all the way back to the wall, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, would be the whole tabernacle, the holy place, but a 15-foot section in the back, 15 by 15 cube, 
was the holiest place or the most holy place. And he says here that we have boldness to enter that holiest place, that little section. Uh, confidence is what he says. You can enter confidently. Um, that is simply, simply something that was not an option for any Jew. No, no Jew could just walk into the temple and go walking into the holy place. That just didn't happen. One person, one day a year, went into that, and that was the high priest, into the presence of God. And they certainly didn't do it with confidence. <laughs> they had to make sure they had washed properly, dressed properly, did all the right things. And even then, boy, I hope I didn't miss anything because God's going to strike me dead. And then everybody waited with bated breath for him to emerge alive but he went in alone. But symbolically, he didn't go in alone. The nation of Israel went in with them because he carried with them their names on his shoulders, on the onyx stones and on the uh, stones of the breastplate over his heart. They entered in with him, and there he went into God's presence with the blood of a, a goat there. Now they are invited to enter, not because of the blood of a goat, but because of the blood of Jesus. And so are we. We're invited to enter into that place. But I want you to see how he describes it. This is, this is a new way. Verse 20, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now, listen, this word new is not the normal word for new in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used here in Hebrews, um, in, in the Bible. It is a very interesting word. It's prosphetos, and it only means this. Freshly slaughtered, freshly killed. Isn't that interesting? Only used here because he was making a very, very clear graphic point. How do you enter into that holy place? It's by the blood of Jesus, which is a freshly slaughtered sacrifice. See, Jesus died 2,000 years ago. And people think today, well, what does the death of a man 2,000 years ago have anything to do with me? But in the terms of Scripture and eternity, he's freshly killed. His blood is just as fresh today as it was 2,000 years ago. You can enter into the presence of God by that blood. For you, it's freshly killed, not 2,000 years ago. But also, it's not only new or freshly killed, but it's through the living way. <laughs> How do you marry those two things? Could you have a sacrifice in the Old Testament that was freshly killed but also living? Makes no sense. Oh, but there is one sacrifice that was freshly killed and yet also living, Jesus Christ. Because he did not stay dead, did he? He was buried and he rose again the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So he is a freshly killed sacrifice, but he's also a living sacrifice. But the author goes on further to say that the way into the holiest was through the veil. Now, that is true. That little 15 by 15 cube was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by a simple veil. And that one day a year, the high priest would just simply brush that veil aside and step into the holiest place. But here, the veil is called his flesh, the flesh of Jesus. This is very interesting. Now, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics. They're seen together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that the veil of the temple was torn at Jesus' death. They all record that. Matthew and Mark all describe it this way, that the veil was torn from top to bottom. You've heard that many times. But Luke is the only one that describes it this way, Luke 23, 45. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. 
mesos, that means the middle. It was torn right down the middle. Access was just completely opened up, completely granted. And we're told that Jesus' flesh or his body is the veil. Now, listen, it's not the actual veil, right? We're not talking about the actual veil. The, actual, the veil separated the God's presence from the rest. So Jesus' body is not what kept us from God's presence. Your sin, my sin, kept us from God's presence. That's not the way he looks at this. But Jesus' flesh was the veil in the sense that access to God's presence was granted through it. It's through the blood of Jesus. When his blood was spilled on that cross, when his body was torn apart on that cross, that opened the veil, access to God through the newly killed and also living way. Incredible, isn't it? So the way to God has been opened since Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. But people have heard a lot of that. They know, yeah, Jesus and the way. But the question that I often get is, why should I come to God? Why should I come to God? What does God have to offer us? Why should you come to God? Let me just appeal to you on a couple of things. Psalm 1611, David writes this. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, our society is incredibly hedonistic. That means we just live for pleasure, right? And, and, and that is absolutely true. And what David is appealing to is to your hedonistic side. You want pleasure? You desire joy in your life? Guess where it can be found? It can be found at the right hand of the Father. It can be found in the presence of God. And you'll not only have it temporarily, but you'll have it forever. It is the Christian hedonist, (laughs) you could say it that way, that our fulfillment, our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction, the greatest pleasure we could ever hope to experience is found in the presence of God. If you wanted to talk to someone and appeal to them in the sense of, I just want to do what I want to do. I just want to live for the pleasure. I want to live for these things. Yes, you can do that, but live for God's pleasure. It's, it's in his presence that you get that for forever. Who wouldn't want that forever? And in addition to that, we are given a glimpse of what life is like in the presence of God. when We dwell with him. In Revelation 21, 3 to 4, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. How many hurting people do you meet? How many people do you talk to that are so distraught? Over, how, many, how many deaths have we had over the last few weeks of just even famous actors and actresses? People are dying all the time. We know people who are sick and in pain and in incredible sorrow. Everyone would love to be free of that. Wouldn't you like to appeal to someone and saying, hey, you know what? You can be free of pain and sorrow and all this, but it's in God's presence. It all ends there. He wipes it away uh, forever. You know, these are the positive sides of the gospel. Listen, there's great pleasure in his presence. There's great joy to be had. No more death, no more crying, no more pain. Who wouldn't want that? But there really is a more sobering reason to come to God. Because everyone who is not found in the presence of God is outside the presence of God, will be judged by God. There is judgment that comes from God. But you're only safe from judgment in his presence. That's the part that people don't want to hear. 
about God judging. And in fact, Scripture tells us about scoffers coming in the last days, meaning ever since Christ, who will just scoff about the, the threat of judgment. And when you read Second Peter, he quotes them for kind of what their scoffing is, is about in verse uh, 4 of chapter 3, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You, you Christians keep saying, he's coming one day, he's coming one day. You've been saying that for all this time. Where's that promise? Listen, when I look at the world, they say, I see millions of years, millions of years. Nothing has changed, millions of years. We went to a, the Jurassic Coast a couple of weeks ago to do that homeschool conference. We went down to the coast to kind of get a peek at it. And, you know, everything that you go to is millions of years. Look at these rocks, millions of years. And we're supposed to look at that and go, wow, you know, that happened over millions of years. But since then, it's been sitting there and nothing has changed. And that's what they're saying. Look, at nothing has changed, which is weird because isn't evolution change? But anyway, nothing has changed millions of years. What they're really saying is there's really never been, nor will there ever be any judgment from God. Nothing changes. You live, then you die, and that is it. But Peter goes on in verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. What is it that people willfully forget who scoff? They willfully forget that the word of God is what created the heavens. The word of God created everything. They forget that. And you go, well, people don't believe that. No, no. What was your memory verse this week? Because your memory verse this week tells us that people do know that. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. They're without excuse. They see, they know it. They just choose to reject it. Why? Because they hate God, they love their sin, and they fear his judgment. But the Bible tells us they know all about that in Romans 1. Here it says they willfully forget, which means they knew it. They willfully forget those things. But they also willfully forget that he did judge sin. He did judge the sin of the whole world. And when did he do that? It says being flooded with water. (laughs) I have actually talked to people who don't believe in the flood, who asked me this question, and they meant it in all seriousness. Okay, if there was a global flood, where did all the water go? Have have you seen our world? What planet do you live on? It's all water. Like There's there's barely, barely land. It's mostly water. When you go to the ocean, you look at the power of the water. It's extremely immense and powerful. Where'd the water go? (laughs) it's all around you, but they willfully forget. The evidence is literally everywhere. But see, when that flood came at the judgment, God was still merciful. He provided a way out. He had a man build a giant vessel. It's called an ark. In fact, there was a replica of the ark built in Kentucky. I have a picture for you up here. It's that the ark encounter, Ken Ham, and his ministries built this, okay? Now, all those little specks you see at the feet of that, those are people. That's the ark. I think we all grew up, grew up in churches where you saw the little cute pictures of the ark and giraffes' heads are sticking out, right? And you look at that and you go, well, yeah, how do you believe in an ark, you know, in a global flood when you see, you know, four animals sticking their head out of this little dinghy? But this is the boat, and it was built according to the dimensions given in Scripture. It's 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet high. 
And I looked this up. The Principality Stadium, uh, the pitch inside there is only 394 feet long. So the, the arc is actually 116 feet longer than that Principality Stadium over there. This is a big vessel. And when you take into account that Noah had only take two of every kind of animal, two of the dog kind, two of the cat kind, the question isn't, oh, why was the ark so small if he was supposed to take all these? The question is, why was it so big? Because not only was there room for two of every kind, but there was a lot of extra room. Why was it so big? Because God was hoping that people would come in repentance, that people would come and enter that ark and find safety and find refuge. But you know what? We're told that the the door of that ark was open until the moment when the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. It not only came from above, but from beneath. I had a debate with a a high school friend of mine. He went into um, marine biology, and so he believed in evolution, all that, and we connected one time, and we started talking about the flood, and, I, and he just couldn't believe that that amount of water could come from the sky. I said, well, it didn't just come from the sky. It came from the underneath. And he went, what are you talking about? That would be like if I had a balloon of water, and I poked a hole, and the water came out, our earth would have shrunk down. Like, our earth isn't a balloon. <laughs> I, just, I don't know where people get these arguments. This is a hard crust shell. We have, we have subterranean water canals all over the place. How'd they find water in the Old Testament? They dug a well. Well, where was it? In the earth. I don't know why. We, this is hard stuff for people. But, but fountains of the deep broke up. It came from above and below. And listen, people had no escape but one. If you knew Noah and you knew where that big boat was, you could get to it and you get in safety. But listen, we're told that only Noah and his family, the wives of his sons, entered that ark. And this is what it says in Genesis seven sixteen. So those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. You see that door stayed open until the moment the flood began to come and then God closed the door. And listen, no doubt when the flood waters began to rise, people found that vessel and they were pounding on it. But listen, it was too late. Everyone died. Everything that had the breath of life, we're told, perished that was not inside the ark. Why do I bring all of that up? Because people scoffed about God's judgment that he won't judge. And and the scriptures say, listen, he did it one time already. And when people were warned about it as Noah, the righteous man that he was, warned people about it for a hundred years, they scoffed and made fun of him. When that rain came, the door closed and it was too late at that point. We're told this in 2 Peter 3, 7, the very next verse. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Right now, this earth that you see and say, oh, look, we're safe and secure, that's also preserved by the word of God. The word that made the heavens and the earth is the very word that keeps the heavens and the earth together. And he says, but one day it's reserved for fire until God will judge it again. Yeah, he, he, he's not going to flood it with, uh, uh, destroy it with a flood again. He set his rainbow in the clouds to remind us of that. In fact, I was out yesterday in Ely. There was this beautiful rainbow just yesterday. I saw the whole thing from one end. Don't you love it when you see the whole thing? And I was reminded of that because I had already prepared this. I was reminded of thank you for your promise. But I'm also knowledgeable of the fact that, yeah, you're not going to use water again, but you're using fire. He is going to judge the world again. The flood 
was an example that God will judge sin. My point is this, enter the door while it remains. Jesus' flesh, the veil, torn open, and now the opportunities for people uh, to enter in. And that's what he's basically boiled down his whole talk about. Access to God has been granted, but it won't be granted forever. Enter while you have a chance. The second thing, the second reason you should come to him is he is your advocate. Verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. So he is uh, the new and living way that gave us access to God. We can boldly enter, but he also is a high priest over the house of God. This is really a point made earlier the high priest went to God on behalf of the people, didn't he? And you can approach God because you have an advocate. This advocate speaks to God on your behalf. His name is Jesus. You don't enter alone. You don't have to go in on your own. There is an evangelist, uh, Ray Comfort. Many of you know him. And I love his evangelism approach. He basically confronts people and says, hey, what do you think you know, about you know, your eternity? Do you think you'll go to heaven or hell when you die? Oh, most people say, oh, I think I'll go to heaven. Oh, why do you think you go to heaven? Oh, I think I'm basically a good person. And then he says, okay, really, well, let me, you know, see if I can, you know, base that off of the Ten Commandments, because that's God's law that will get you into heaven. You ever, you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, I probably told a lie. Okay, so you're guilty of lying, so you're a liar. You ever, you ever uh, stole anything? Well, I probably stole. Okay, so you're a thief, according to God's law, so you're a lying thief. Uh, you, you ever uh, committed adultery? Well, no, I never committed adultery. But Jesus says that if you look at a woman lustfully, you committed adultery. Okay, I guess I'm adulterous. So you're lying, thieving, adulterous. Uh, you ever... Took God's name in vain. Yeah, I have. Okay, so you're a lying, thieving, adulterous, blasphemer. Do you think God's going to find you guilty? And the people go, well, I guess, I guess they would. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm guilty. But that's the law. And God is judging us by his law, his standard. And in James chapter 2, it gets worse. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all of it. You, you just stumble at one of those, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. And I think people think that they're going to have enough good works to go into God and say, hey, but listen, it's not about that. You need an advocate. And the advocate is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus that's going to vouch for you. It's not you vouching for you. You're not going to go, well, hold on, I did this and this and this, because Jesus even says, oh, many will come in my name and say, oh, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? And I'm just going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You, you, you did all these things, but I, I didn't know you. You see, Jesus is not their advocate. Jesus is only the advocate of those who come to him because the only way to the Father is through him. We need an advocate. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's putting Christians, my little children, those are Christians, at ease. Listen, these things are written so you won't sin, but knowing human nature, you will sin, but that's why we have an advocate. Jesus goes to the Father and says, my blood covers that one. He's come to me. I'm, I, I'm his advocate. I represent him. I'm standing up for him. And that's why Jesus can say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Why should you accept Christ? He's made access to God. In his presence, his pleasures forevermore. All the things you're pursuing here in this life, you actually get forever in heaven. The righteous things, the perfect things, all these things we pursue, they don't fill us. And they take us away from God. But also, you'll be judged. 
You'll be outside of the presence of God, and you won't have that advocate standing for you. So the second question might be this, then how do I accept Christ? I've actually been asked that. How do I accept Christ? I remember even just uh, when we were meeting early on, when you guys were first here and meeting with Roxy, huh? You know, just new things and things were, but she was very like, I'm not sure, you know, it's like, what is it? You know, there's something missing. What do I need to do? If you want to know how to accept Christ, listen up because it comes to us right here. It comes to us through three let us phrases. In verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession. And verse 24, let us consider one another. This is the way. And so listen to this. The first is this, to draw near in faith. That's the first thing. Draw near in faith. Verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So let us draw near. All of those, those four words is one word in the, the Greek. It's the same word we looked at this before in Hebrews 4.16. And I'll put that up there just to remind you. 4.16 said, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come boldly, draw near to him. And when we come to the throne, we find grace and we can obtain mercy. Those are two very important things. What are they? At the Resolved uh, teaching two weeks ago, the last Resolved that we have, Dave Farnham did a great job on that, and, and he had a slide up there that had both those things to, to ask the kids, what is mercy and what is grace? Because there's a difference. What is mercy? When you walk into the presence of God, knowing you deserve to be judged for your sin, knowing that you deserve that judgment, God withholds that judgment. Mercy is you get, not getting what you deserve, right? You, you deserve that judgment, but he withholds it and instead offers grace. That's getting what you don't deserve, getting grace, his favor. He says, come to me, child, because you're coming to him, understanding that you deserve judgment. You have no one else to turn to. We can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's what it says. Why can we do that? Well, he explains, uh, moving on, and we'll come back to that. He says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. What did the high priest do when he went into that, uh, uh, that holiest place once a year? He took some blood and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat, didn't he? He sprinkled on there to cover the sins of the people. But what do you say? It never did anything for your conscience. You still left guilty. But here we're told that we have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. You see, that was external. That was on the cover of the ark. But you have had your very heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. It's not guilty. It's cleansed. And this is what he was referring to in, in the Jeremiah 31 passage, which um, back in chapter 10, verse 16 he revisited, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. He comes into our hearts and does a new work. And that's what happens. You can draw near because something internally has taken place. That's the po positional sanctification we spoke of last week. Positionally sanctified in the presence of God. But secondly, he says, our bodies are washed with pure water. What is that? Some think, is, is that baptism? Is that what that is? No, because I've been using the wrong water. It certainly isn't pure. <laughs> I know how many surfers are out there, and I know what they do in that water. It is not pure water. 
When we baptize, it is a symbolic thing of what takes place. What is this about then? How are our bodies washed with pure water? Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that comes in and does that renewing, regenerating, washing work in your heart. Internally, he does that. And, you know, we're told that Christ uh, loved the church and that he gave himself up for the church. And, and we're told that he did that by cleansing her with the washing of the water with the word. It's the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit washing over you that cleanses you. And that is the practical sanctification. That's for holy living. That's why it says our bodies with pure water positionally Inwardly, I'm sprinkled from an evil conscience so that I can be right before God, but then practically sanctified so I can live the righteous life that he wants me to live. And these things are the why, okay? The why of drawing near. We can draw near because those things have been accomplished. The how of drawing near, and I really want you to pay attention to this part, is through a true heart and full assurance of faith. A true heart and full assurance of faith begins with faith. What is faith? What is faith? Lots of people talk about faith. You just have to have faith in something. Faith is a conviction of the truth is what faith is. Do you believe these things to be true? Great. But if you do nothing about it, what good is the truth to you? What good is this information if you do not act upon it? Because that's, that's just belief. And James 2.19 says, if you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You do well. That's the right start. You believe in God. But if that's it, you're no better off than the demons because they believe in God. It's not about belief. It's about acting on that belief. That's what faith is. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. You don't need to know the whole Bible. You don't need to have exhausted, exhaustive knowledge of God. If you have enough knowledge of God to be condemned by him, you certainly have enough knowledge to be saved by him. It begins with an understanding of this, salvation. You have to, uh, and we've heard this over the last few weeks, and it starts with this. It's recognizing your need. It begins there. That's the true heart. That speaks of a felt need. God is not something you simply believe in. God's not something you simply have had an experience with one time. You need God. That's the true heart. Because without him, you're doomed. You know, in the the parenting class, we talk about our children being born believing two lies. And I said, it's imperative that you get them not to believe these lies. That's your primary objective when you begin uh, training them. Because If you don't get these out of them, then they grow up still believing these lies. And the first is this, that they believe they're autonomous. And that that is, they believe they're born independent. And every time you have a battle of wills with that two-year-old or that three-year-old or four-year-old, what they're saying is, you will not rule me. That's what they're saying. But they are ruled, aren't they? You're ruled. And if you don't get that out of them and say, you are under authority, you will always be under authority. Then they become 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. And they still believe that they rule themselves and they just cannot relinquish the rule. I remember sharing the gospel 
around a bunch of hard grips, you know, when I was in the grip industry, and uh, movie industry, but they were grips, and, and, and there's an old crusty guy, and he just said, for me, it's this, I rule myself. He said that, I make my decisions. He was like 60 years old, and I said, hmm. no one ever told him any different. So he grew up believing that. You let your kids believe that, they'll believe that until they're 60. You have to get that out of them. And that's what I see in people's lives today. They've just grown up believing they're autonomous. They own themselves. They are their own authority. They rule themselves. That is a lie. Number two, they believe they're self-sufficient, meaning they believe they have everything within themselves that they, that they need in order to be what they're supposed to be and do what they're supposed to do. Your kids don't. And if you don't get that out of them, guess what? They grow up believing they have everything they need in themselves to be what they're supposed to be and do what they're supposed to do. And they don't. They're poor, blind, naked wretches. They have nothing in themselves. And that's a church that's mentioned in Revelation 3. It's called the lukewarm church. It's often referred to as that. They thought they were self-sufficient. Revelation 3, 17, it says this, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's Jesus talking. He says, I see you, church, and you think you have it all together, but you're actually poor, blind, miserable wretches. You have got nothing because they never believed that they, they were in need, were desperately in need. It begins with a felt need. Recognizing your need means you recognize that you need to be ruled because you make a lousy ruler, and it recognizes that your felt needs uh, means that you, you need something about your sin, to do something about your sin. You have nothing in you that is good. Nothing. There's no one righteous, not one. You must come to him in faith, and when you draw near to him, then you can do so in full assurance. That's forgiveness. That's been granted by the blood of Jesus. It begins with faith, and you see that word there. begins with faith. It's not just belief. Faith, recognizing your need. You need God. Without him, you're doomed. Secondly, verse 23, hold fast in hope. Draw near in faith, hold fast in hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast. There you again have a, a phrase there, but it's one word in the Greek, tek. Uh, kateko, it means to hold fast, to keep secure. I like this, though, to keep firm possession of. That's the word there. It's also used in chapter 3, verse 6, and verse 14. We looked at that many, many months ago. Uh, used in a nautical sense to check a ship's headway, to hold fast the heading of the ship. So what are we to hold fast to? What are we to keep firm possession of? The confession of our hope. When you confess Christ as your rightful ruler and you find your sufficiency in him, then you are confessing that you've now placed your hope in him for everything. We don't relinquish that hope and turn to some other hope. We keep our hope in him. Hope is a major theme in Hebrews. I want to walk through some of the verses real quick with you that we've seen this come to us, and this makes it more clear. Hebrews chapter 3, just turn back a few pages. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. There it is. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 18 of chapter 6. 
that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And verse 19, the hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Isn't that interesting that it takes us to that veil again? And then in chapter 7, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Do you see how hope is tied to presence of God, access to God? Listen, you've got to hold fast that confession of hope. If you begin to place your hope in something else and no longer has anything to do with God, that's how we draw back. That's how we fall away. This is not new. This doesn't mean losing salvation. The parable of the sower reveals that that belief must be until the end because some believe until they're tempted. Some believed until life gets too hard and they run away. We, we find there was no real root there, no real fruit there. Hope becomes replaced. They cease to hope in God. And Luke eight fifteen tells us what happens to those who keep their hope. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, or you could say the true heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. See, they held fast to that. They kept it. So while we're called to hold fast, our holding fast is not just based on our ability. Okay, I'm not trying to scare people. You better hold fast. I hope you don't let go because then you're doomed. Notice what it says. Let us hold fast the confidence of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. I'm so glad that continued to that. It doesn't just depend on me. Remember, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. What's our verse this week? Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You hold fast your confession, but God holds fast of you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Do you trust him to do it? He'll do it. But you also must stay faithful to him and hold fast the confession. But you'll be able to through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So draw near in faith and then hold fast the confession. Just remember, there's no other hope you're going to find that's of greater hope than in Christ. Now you go, that's so hard. Because it's so, I'm so alone. You don't know my situation. It's so difficult. Thank God there's another point. Look at this. Verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Consider there is katanoeo, and it means to fix one's eyes upon. We were told to fix our eyes upon Christ back in chapter 3. But here the same word is used for one another to fix our eyes upon one another. Who, who needs the encouraging? Who needs the stirring up? Why do we have to stir up love or provoke is the word or encourage one another uh, to, to love? Because it's hard. We need one another. And how do we do it? Look at verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. You, you have to meet together. That's his point. We have to do this. We have to be together, and not just on Sundays, but when we're together on Wednesdays, and we're together on Fridays, and, and as often as we can get together, because we have to stir one another up 
to encourage one another forward in love and good works. That helps us hold fast that confession. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. You can't do it on your own. And this is why we fought so hard to meet even during the lockdowns, because we knew what Scripture said. I'm commanded to meet together because I know there's people drowning, and they're going to drown, and they're going to let go, and they're going to draw back. He says, some draw back all the way to destruction. We said, don't do that. Come. Come and get encouraged. We have to hold fast. It is imperative that you be part of a church and you meet regularly with them. We need the encouragement. We need accountability. We need prayers. And guys, we need even need the rebukes. We need the corrections because we go wrong. We all go wrong. We need those things. Why is that so important? This is why. Remember, he's talking to the people who are looking to go back to Judaism, who leave in the faith. He's given the gospel. He says, here's how you accept Christ. You need these things. Draw near in faith. Faith, hold fast the confession, and now meet together. Stir one another up toward love and good works. Why? And so much more as you see the day approaching. Because the day is approaching. When he says the day there, he is speaking about judgment because he's been warning about that. He is speaking about that. Back in chapter 9, verse 28, when he said that he was coming to those who were eagerly waiting for Christ, that was probably more in reference to him coming to believers in the rapture. But here, this is judgment. He's coming. And so he says, listen, you need to accept the gospel now. To hear, as you're hearing this, accept it. He wants people to choose salvation. He's given them the opportunity. Because the day is approaching again when that door will be shut and people will no longer have an opportunity to make a decision for the Lord. So how do you accept Christ? You come to him in faith. You hold on to him in hope. And you encourage one another in love. Paul encourages us to abide in those three things in 1 Corinthians 3. 3. Uh, 13, he says, abide in faith, hope, and, and love. Why? Why do we abide in those? Those are the necessary components for salvation, to going all the way, and we're going to do it together. We draw near in faith, we hold fast the confession, and we come together and we stir one another up to love and good works. If you've never made a decision for Christ, can I tell you it's a very simple thing? You just let go of all the hope that you place in all the things of the world that can't give you any hope. And you draw near to him. You trust him. It's faith. He says he'll do it. He says he has you. You just start there. God will take care of the rest. Let me pray. God, thank you for your great word to us today. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you've extended this invitation to those even in this room today to accept the truth of who Christ is, to recognize their felt need that they need to be ruled because we just so, so mess up our lives. I need to be ruled by the one who knows me intimately and who knows my needs. I need to confess my sins and come to the one who can cleanse me and bring me into the presence of of God. I pray for people today that they would start with that in faith. They would come to you and they would hold fast to that confession of hope. And that would come through the encouragement of coming together as believers, stirring one another up and exhorting one another as we love one another in this life. This life is hard. It's difficult. This thing doesn't come easy. But we need one another. But it begins with you. We need Christ. Lord, please impress upon 
those hearts that need to be impressed upon their utter need for you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You stand.